Good morning, City Light. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Light. How are we doing? Awesome worship this morning. Thank you, Ben. And typically, I get the honor of leading you guys in worship, but today, I get to pick up God's Word and unpack it with you today. Is that okay? Awesome. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be there in a little part of chapter 7. And as we continue our series in Acts, I want to remind us of this theme that Gavin launched a few weeks ago. And it's been prevalent throughout this entire series, and it's this, that Jesus' work continues by the power of the Holy Spirit through his people. That's our theme. That's what we're going to see today as we open the text. But before we do that, I want to tell you a quick story about the time I was a grocery deliverer. I was living in Birmingham, Alabama, and this brand new company called Shipped came into town, and they were looking to hire their first round of employees. And so I quickly applied and got a job. If you're not familiar with Shipped, it's kind of an app-based service. It's kind of like the Uber of grocery delivering. And so what happens is, is users download an app, they pick out the groceries they, they want, and then it sends a notification to me, the shopper, who would then get in my car and go to the grocery store, shop for them, and then deliver it. And I would do this about six to seven times a day, and I would deliver groceries to very busy families who were always thankful that I could take something off of their plate. And so... This company took off really well. It was very popular in Birmingham, and it was very popular because it met a need that you and I experience all the time, that there are just some moments where we simply can't do it all. Sometimes we need a little bit of help, and our story today in Acts is a picture of just that. And over the last few weeks, we've seen in the book of Acts that the work and the ministry has been primarily been doing through the work and the hands of the apostles. All the signs and the wonders, the preaching and the teaching and the praying, all of the healings are happening through the apostles. A lot of ministry is happening. But not a lot of people are actually happy with this, as we see in our text. Some are a little frustrated because the apostles are so busy. And we see for the very first time that the opposition that the church was failing was not from outside of the church, but from the inside. A complaint arises. Some people are not happy. Some of the church is being neglected. And the tension that I want you to see is just like the tension that the busy families who couldn't get their groceries in time had, is that sometimes we do not have the time to do it all. And the apostles faced that tension. And that's going to be our focus today, that even when the apostles couldn't do it all. It was still Jesus's plan to work through people to solve their problem, to continue the mission. And we're going to find in our text today that the people that Jesus wants to use understand two things. And that's this, the calling and the cost. And that's our big idea today that Jesus is uh, calling us to understand two things. Jesus wants to work through people who understand their calling and the cost of following him. In our text today, there's one person that emerges from that who embodies this big idea very well, and his name is Stephen. Stephen is a guy and a character that we're going to study today who embodies this idea of calling and cost. And today, I have two very simple points. And point one is this, if you've got your bulletin, is that Jesus works through people who understand their calling. That's where we're starting this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. 
Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. City like the early church is experiencing some good problems. The word of God is moving forth. People are becoming saved. People are walking into relationship with Jesus. We're seeing new ethnic groups and cultures come in. You see the Hellenists that were mentioned in the text are Greek-speaking people who are now in community and fellowship with Hebrew-speaking people. And what's the obvious problem here? There's a language barrier. And this creates some of the Hellenist widows being neglected. And this obviously creates an unintended consequence because we're seeing that some are being ignored. So the problem here is that the apostles have to navigate this thing. How do we solve this? And their options are pretty obvious here, right? They can ignore it, continue what they've been called to do, to preach and to pray and let the Hellenists just be ignored. Or what they could do is teach less and pray less and tend to the orphans, but or not orphans, but to the widows, but neglect the word. But neither, was, neither option was the right plan nor Jesus' plan. Jesus had a better plan and a better option to solve this problem. We see that Jesus' plan was to continue the mission by inspiring and leading the apostles to enlist some help and to raise up new leaders. And who did they choose? And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, what I want you to see, other than the fact that I just read you the hottest baby names of 2019... <laughs> I want you to see this, that the main thing here in this text is that we see for the first time that certain people have been set apart with a calling. The apostles have been set apart to teach and to pray, and we see that Stephen and the others have been set apart to serve the widows. Both roles are from God, and each role has been called by God to continue the mission of God. And as we keep reading in verse 7, we're going to see just the impact this decision made. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and full of power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen and the others have been given this new calling, and because of it, we see continued growth in the church. What do we see? The word increases. Disciples are multiplied, and many signs and wonders are being done. And it's all because of the, the apostles are in the right place, and Stephen and the others are in their right place to serve the widows. But what I love about this passage is not only was Stephen in his right place to serve, but we see in the text that he was also a man of remarkable character. 
What do we see? He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. He's of good repute. And he's full of grace. And when I think about Stephen, I also think about the people that I've met like that in my life. And those are the people that I've always wanted to be around. Have you ever met anybody like that? That you just want to be around them? And Stephen was that person. People wanted to be around Stephen. And the text even suggests that. That his calling was among the people. And we should take notice to this phrase among the, t- uh, among the people in the text because it suggests something interesting for us and actually very practical for this room. And we'll touch on that in a moment. But you see, the apostles were primarily doing the work in the temple. They were praying and preaching in the temple. But Stephen was different. His calling was not in the temple. It was outside the temple, among the people. Now, there are many details we simply just don't have about this. We don't know if he was paid or a volunteer or a professional at this. All we know is that he is a disciple, full of the Holy Spirit, doing ministry among the people. And just like Stephen's calling was different from the apostles, so is everyone else's who is not called into vocational ministry. And as I look around this room, it's probably safe to say the vast majority of you and the vast majority in the church are not in vocational ministry. Most people in this room and in the local church have been called to work outside of the traditional church setting. And as I think about this, I'm reminded that there's some kind of fallacy here in the Christian faith that there's only a few that have been called with a profession. And today, church, I want to tell you that's not true. And how often do we hear that pastors are called and missionaries are called and those in the priesthood are certainly called? But for the rest of you, you just have jobs. And City Light, what I want you to see is that you have more than just a job. I want to see that your vocation, if you're outside of vocational ministry, that you too have been called to where you are. Your work, your career, your vocation, your job is a calling from God. Pastors and missionaries and the priesthood are not the only ones who have been called to serve God. We all have a calling. The Puritans, um, some of the earliest Christians in North America, this is a group of people that studied and prayed a lot. And through their devotion and study, they came up with this notion and perfected this idea of calling and vocation. They described our calling in three ways. They believe that the Christian has won the highest calling. The highest calling is this. It's our relationship with God. It's our relationship with Jesus. We never abandon this. We never leave this. This is paramount for us as Christians. Our relationship with God is our highest calling. The Puritans also believe we have a different way that our calling expresses itself. It's called the common calling. What that means is that everybody in this room, we share something together. Every scripture, every command, every commandment in the scripture, we share this together is the common calling. Every verse that applies to us as Christians is the common calling. Examples of this would be we've all been called to go and make disciples And we've also all been called to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is the common calling. The Puritans also believed that we had a third calling. And that third calling is the specific calling. They believe that our specific calling is the vocation or job or the thing that God has placed you to do. From the gritty and handy construction worker to the skillful and careful surgeon 
and every job in between, we all have a specific calling that we've been given to work out of. And I believe the Puritans got this idea, this notion of calling right. You see, the first two callings for us never change. The highest and common calling never change for us. They're the foundation for us as believers. And that not only is it a foundation, it's a fuel that propels our specific calling. Changing our specific calling from something is just a means to an end to make money and changing it to something where we see it as an opportunity, as a kingdom post to be salt and light to a hopeless world. Now, City Light, I, I want to press in for a moment. You're kind of probably thinking, okay, what does this all mean? I want to ask you a question as you process that. I want to ask you, do you see your daily vocation, your job, whether it be in the home or outside of the home, whether it's on a college campus or in an office building downtown, do you see your vocation, you see your job as a kingdom post to give God glory? Or do you see it as a financial means to your end? There's a difference. You see, Stephen and the apostles were willing to say yes to the specific calling, to be set in the right place, to serve the widows and to preach and to pray. They were willing to give their lives to this. And what made the early church a vibrant and healthy church and an unstoppable force is the same thing that's going to make us a healthy and unstoppable force, church. And that's when we understand that we have been given a calling, a job, a place to serve as a kingdom post to make God known among the world. But you might be thinking, Justin, I literally work in a cubicle all day and I look at spreadsheets. Does that matter to God? Or Justin, you may be thinking, I literally chase kids and corral them all day and I wipe cracker crumbs off of mouths all day. How does that give God glory? Does that really matter to God? It does. And this is how. God is glorified in our specific vocations and our jobs when we labor and work with excellence and joy every single day. And he's glorified when we do our jobs to the best of our abilities. Whether in or outside of the home, God is glorified when we strive to live out our jobs and our callings with skill, with passion, and with integrity. And God is glorified when we use our jobs as arenas to make him known and to make disciples. That is how we glorify God in our daily vocations. I'm naturally introverted. So when I ride on a plane or I take a flight somewhere, I usually take that time to read or to listen to music or to do the uh, crossword puzzle in the in-flight magazine. I love it. But I'm also, there's times where I push away the introversion and I engage my neighbor. And how does that conversation usually go? You usually ask, hey, are you going home? Are you, you leaving? What are you doing? And usually that conversation is like, well, I'm coming home from a work trip or I'm leaving to do this for work. And then me, I have to ask them, well, what do you do? And I know as soon as I ask that question, I'm setting myself up for an awkward situation in a few moments because they're going to tell me what they do and I'm going to have to respond because they're going to say, hey, so what do you do? And as soon as I tell them I'm a pastor, it gets really 
really awkward. And so they asked me, so what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor and down goes the plane and we crash into awkward mountain. Okay. So for whatever reason, when you tell somebody that you're sitting next to on a plane, that you're a pastor, they just clam up. It happens every single time. They're sending their drink back. They're putting their headphones on and they're going to sleep. It's just weird. That's just what it is. But I tell you that story to tell you this. As even though I'm in vocational ministry, there are still moments in my life as a pastor where my job, what I do, leads people to be less receptive to the gospel. And what I want you to see is that for those that are not in vocational ministry, you actually have greater influence more than I do as a pastor to share the gospel to a lost and dying world. If every single Christian was called into vocational ministry, then we would never have Christians on the floor of the stock market or in the halls of our schools. And City Light, for us to be the church that God intended us to be, to be the unstoppable force, to be the healthy and vibrant movement of God in this world, we have to understand our calling. We have to understand that we've been given a specific job to do and a place to live out, to give God glory and to make disciples. And Stephen understood this. But Stephen is soon going to find out that once you embrace your calling, there's always a cost to be paid. And that's point two this morning, is that Jesus works through people who understand the calling or understand the cost of following him. We're going to find that out as we jump back into the text, starting in verse nine. And some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and of God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. Stephen's living out his faith among the people. So much so, people start to take notice. The religious leaders start to take notice and we see that our good story quickly turns into something bad. And in short, a conflict emerges. Stephen is wrongly accused. He seized and false witnesses are set up. And then he stands on trial in front of something that looks like the United States Supreme Court. This scene does not look good for our brother Stephen. But Stephen responds to the accusations with a sermon that takes a good portion of chapter 7. And we don't have time to walk through this sermon today, but what you need to know about this sermon is that it basically highlights the major events of the Old Testament that are all leading to Jesus. And then Stephen caps off this brilliant, long sermon by saying something that they needed to hear but refused to hear. And we're going to fast forward in chapter 7 to verse 1 and see how he finishes his sermon. He says this, you stiff-necked 
people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus, whom you now betrayed and murdered. How about that for a closing application for a sermon? I love Stephen here. I love his boldness. Not only is he willing to put his life on the line to serve Jesus anywhere, he's willing to put his life on the line to be bold in the face of heavy, fierce, angry opposition. And we, as we keep walking through the text, we're going to see that not everybody's impressed or favorable with Stephen's end to his sermon. And they respond in a very, very hostile way. We see in verse 54 that, that when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as, if they, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, Stephen was not only a man who understood his calling. He understood that being threatened, falsely accused, and even being stoned to death were all a part of the cost of following Jesus. You see, Stephen understood the cost of following Jesus. And he was willing to pay every bit of that cost so Jesus could be glorified. City Light, following Jesus is not easy. And this story certainly proves that. And if we fully step into our calling, there will always be a cost. I think of our brothers and sisters right now in North Korea and Iran who are currently counting the cost as we speak for their faith. But the reality for us this morning as we think about that is that counting the cost may not look like that for us. The reality is that we may not lose our lives for Jesus here in America. The cost of our faith looks a little bit different. And as I was thinking about that, what are the costs for us as Christians in America if it's not our lives The cost may come when you and I share our faith in our neighborhood, knowing that we might get labeled as the weird religious guy. Or the cost comes when your significant other no longer wants to date you because you refuse to cross the lines of purity outside of marriage. And maybe the cost comes when you refuse to gossip and you actually speak words of life about your boss amongst your coworkers and they pushed you outside the social circle. The cost looks different here in America. And we may not, never lose our lives, but yet, how, do, how many times do we still seek refuge inside of a brand of American Christianity that's convenient and consumeristic and safe? I know I certainly do. 
I don't always understand the cost of following Jesus. And I'm often tempted to buy into this American Christianity that's convenient and safe. And as I stand here today, I've got to confess some things to you. I confess that for me, I would rather walk quickly into my house than engage my new neighbor. And I confess to you, if you were to look at my bank account, you would see withdrawals that reflect personal comfort rather than gospel generosity. And I have to be honest with you today, I would rather send a missionary to North Korea and to Iran than actually go. I don't always understand the cost of following Jesus. But City Light, as I wrestle with this, as I look in my own life, I have to pause and ask you the same things. What brand of Christianity are you subscribing to? Is it safe? Is it convenient? Is it consumeristic? Or is it a brand of Christianity that looks a lot like Stephen's life? And though understanding the cost of following Jesus may be hard and an uncomfortable reality as we sit here and think about Stephen's life and the cost of following Jesus, I want to remind you that there is a comfort that comes with that. And how do I know that? Because Stephen was comforted in his darkest moment when he was paying the highest cost. And if you look at verse 55, we will see that. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And City Light, look at this. Jesus was standing, not sitting, but standing at the right hand of God. City Light, look at this. Jesus is standing in this moment, watching Stephen, as if, as if he's saying, Stephen, I am here with you in this moment. Take my Holy Spirit. I am with you, and know that you are not alone in this moment. You see, there's special empowerment for the Christian from the Holy Spirit in the midst of suffering, in the midst of when we have to pay the highest cost. And what looks like tragedy now will look like triumph later when we have to face it head on. And Jesus was doing exactly that for Stephen when he was facing his accusers and facing the stones. And Jesus will do that for us too if you are in Christ. He will help us endure the things that we see as tragedies now and to triumphs later. And Jesus is standing over Stephen, seeing this scene as something familiar. And it's familiar to Jesus because Stephen looks a lot like who? Jesus. You see, city like Jesus, just like Stephen, was taken outside of the city for his execution on the cross. And just like Stephen, Jesus also prayed while he was dying. And just like Stephen, Jesus would ask God to forgive those who were killing him. And just like Stephen, Jesus would ask God to take his spirit. You see, Jesus sympathized with Stephen because Jesus endured everything Stephen endured first. You see, Jesus brought the greatest comfort to Stephen as Stephen was paying the highest cost for him. And he was never alone. Jesus was standing over him, watching him, encouraging him all the way to the finish line. And I can imagine this. Picture this with me, church. I can imagine Stephen giving his last breath and his spirit being received by God. And him walking into heaven, seeing Jesus face to face. And Jesus embracing Stephen and gently whispering in his ear, Well done, 
my faithful and good servant. Well done. Jesus brought the greatest comfort to Stephen. And this story is an example for us too, that we can take great comfort in knowing that Jesus will be our greatest strength in the midst of the greatest suffering and, we, and when we have to pay the greatest cost. His Holy Spirit will be with us and it will empower us to face this with courage and with boldness. Not only does His Holy Spirit provide us with strength, His example also provides us the assurance that we too can fully understand our calling and the cost. You see, Jesus knew that his calling was to be the Messiah, to be the one to save us from our sins. And Jesus also knew that there was going to be a heavy cost to be paid to fulfill his calling. You see, we have eternal life today. And we have eternal life today because Jesus was willing to die the death that you and I deserve, that you and I might have salvation in him. The salvation that we all share today came from an eternal calling and a very painful cost. The gospel that saves us came from God planning this, willing this as the calling of Jesus and knowing that his son would have to suffer. Jesus is our truest example of someone who embodied and understood their calling and the cost. And as we close this morning, I want us to give us a very simple application for us today as we understand what is this calling and cost mean? How do I actually do this? Here's how. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on Jesus. You see, City Light, Stephen, in his final moments of his life, was keeping his eyes on Jesus. He saw Jesus standing there, risen, reigning, ruling, Never moving, no one's taking him away from that kingdom post. He had the strength and courage and the boldness to do everything we see in the text because he kept his eyes on Jesus. But church, there's something at stake if we fail to keep our eyes on Jesus. In City Light, I want to remind you that there is an enemy that wants to do everything in his power to take your eyes off of Jesus. We have an enemy that wants to keep your eyes on yourself, on your money, on your 401k, to keep your eyes on the scrolling political news ticker that comes across your screen. And we have an enemy that even wants to keep your eyes on your phone. The enemy wants nothing more than for us to live convenient and complacent lives that are void of any cost and avoid of any calling. But, when we keep our eyes on Jesus, when we keep our eyes on the risen and reigning Savior, we become centered on our calling and the cost of what he's asked us to do. There's no other way to do this but to keep our eyes on Jesus, just like Stephen. City Light, Jesus is inviting us to keep our eyes on him. May we be a church. May we be a community. May City Light be an unstoppable force that embraces the calling and the cost. And we keep our eyes on him, never wavering or looking back, but keeping our eyes on the risen Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this day, your word and this text that you've given us. 
God, we are marveled by the example of Stephen. But we're even more marveled by your example. God, you knew that you had to die. That it was going to be you who would take on the sin of the world. And scripture reminds us that it was for the joy set before you that you endured the cross. So we thank you, Jesus, that you endure the cross so that we might have life in you. And so, Father, we use that as a response, as a fuel to propel us to go out into our specific jobs, our callings, the places that you've assigned us to be, to live out there as kingdom posts to glorify you, to make disciples and to make you known. And we also understand that when we fully embrace that, there will always be a cost. And so, Father, give us the courage, the strength, the boldness to keep our eyes on you, to make you known that you lead us to do what you want us to do. God, we look to you as our truest example, the person who knew their calling and the cost. God, we want to be an example to a lost, dying world. Help us to do that in Jesus' name.